I'm Louise and I'm Mary Kay and together we are Novel Gazing the podcast that talks all about literary fiction. We are recording today's show on March the 31st. Technically it is the end of this endless month so hurrah for that. (laughs) (laughs) What has been this month? I just don't understand time anymore. Uh, (laughs) So yeah we have made it everybody congratulations. Uh, On today's show, we're discussing current affairs and news from the literary fiction world, the books that changed our lives, and talking also about our current reads. Yes. Uh, Before we get into the meat of the episode, though, we do want to hear from one of our lovely sponsors that makes all of this possible. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. And, okay, let's talk about what's happening in the literary world since, as you mentioned, like, we've lived through, like, March is a whole decade long. Isn't it? Uh, And there's, like, no distinction of time. So it just, when we look at things as new, I'm like, this happened, like, last year. It just feels, Mm. like, so long ago. (laughs) I think there's been no change. You're all cooped up in the house going I think I literally just spent, like, last week staring to the void. 
<laughs> just like thinking, <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to get my life back together at some point, but who knows where to begin? Right. It's like the opposite of when the alien, like the, the, the members of the spaceship, uh, what is it, Nostromo, go into space and mm. they like, get cryogenically frozen or whatever. It's yeah. like the opposite. It's like we a fast aging oh, my <laughs> time period. But okay, the, so what's new, though? Well, the weird thing <laughs> is, and this is what really su- surprised me, is that there has been a big uh, upsurge in sales for, you know, those big, big landmark titles that we're all supposed to have read, but perhaps kind of haven't. Right. So <laughs> books like War and Peace, uh, The Lord of the Rings, uh, In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust, they have all had a massive, massive sale rises. So as part of this, wow. I had a look. I know. I was thinking, when did the when was the last time that these big titles featured? Right. Uh, and I feel like In Search of Lost Time is the tome to be reading yeah. right now. Because <laughs> where know. is what is time? Yeah, we just um, all don't isn't that anything. one like seven volumes also? Oh yeah, so it, just... it, it did specify in the article, uh, which we will link to in the show notes, that it is the first installment. Okay. So maybe if this okay, goes I on for another now. million months, we'll all get to volume two or something. Right. Oof. Okay. So what do you make of that? I think it's really interesting. Because uh, as I say, like I, I did a week of sort of staring into the void and thinking, I've got a PhD to write and, and things to do. <laughs> and right. honestly, I have no inclination to do anything, let alone pick up a book or even read it so hitting yeah. for these big bestsellers well they're not bestsellers they're only just bestsellers hitting for these big mm-hmm. landmark titles has our genre's time finally come i hope so mm. and i i also think that i mean i was last week was kind of rough for me because i just was having a hard time distinguishing between times if that makes sense like Mm. what do i need to be doing plus there's like an international crisis and we still have to like everybody (laughs) i don't know how this is happening but on social media everyone's like no excuses for doing all the stuff you've been wanting to do for years and it's like well yeah that's a big excuse (laughs) like there's a crisis like i'm i'm a little preoccupied with that um so it it is a little surprising to me that the books are being uh, bought versus like you just taking them off a shelf being like, well, I've had Moby Dick forever. Yeah. I guess it's time to just tuck into that. But I think that's great because from what I've heard, a lot of um, online sales, especially through independent booksellers is on the rise mm. because everyone's on social media now and a whole bunch of independents are on there being like, Hey, now's the time to like, <laughs> if you were thinking about buying a book before, go ahead and do it. Yeah, please um, help us or, business. Yes, or if you don't have anything in mind, if you are like Mary Kay, I'm talking about myself, um, if you are like me, then, and you're not ready to like buy more because you have a huge stack, like buy a gift card and then use it later just to help everybody with that. But um, it's interesting to me too that like, the classics are the ones that are selling the most when Mm. I feel like they're the people, the authors who benefit the least from it. Like, they've been dead a long, long time. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but that, that is a pr- quite a potent argument, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> we kind of turn to these uh, dead guys to tell us how to deal with the massive crisis that we've got going on. And it's like, all right, I get that, because it's kind of, 
going to your cultural touchstones, isn't it? And thinking, mm-hmm. I can't answer the the um the questions that I have to answer right now. So maybe this guy can. Yeah, and I think also uh, while we're talking about like the nebulous nature of time, mm. it feels very nineteenth century to me right now because <laughs> no one has. No one who's alive now has lived through something like this where we're yeah, all like it is so strange, staying it? in it's, your it's yeah. Life. It definitely feels like I should be watching Moulin Rouge and being like, I get it, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, so it does kind of make sense that like we're a little bit uh, not even nostalgic, but just kind of like referencing people who have lived through or or did live really uh, through something like this. Yeah. Because contemporary authors, while providing great escapism, which I thoroughly appreciate, um, we don't have a point of reference for this, really. No. Not personally. I should hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're talking about like historians have a frame of reference for it, but not like a, you know, a personal one. If that yeah. makes sense. I saw this really cool article about like uh, Victorian parlor games. I was like, well, if you're tired of staring into your screen, <laughs> like, Do you so can link to that one as well. One of the, because um, I collect a lot of books from sort of the 19th century, earlier 20th. And mm-hmm. one of the books that like, it's time has come is Victorian uh, parlour games in the school and the common room and the mm. gymnasium. And it's so hysterical because they're like, fold up a piece of paper, pass it to your friend. Oh, the hijinks that we had. And it's like, <laughs> guys, guys. Right, it's like, try to light this candle while standing on one foot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, how we laughed. It's silly, but it would be fun, you know, especially if you were making a drinking game out of it. Like... Oh yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. That's a good Everything point. is a drinking game at this point, also. <laughs> oh no. Um, but yeah. <laughs> what really interested me with this as well is that, like, I, I I've said that I found it so difficult to concentrate on something, and mm-hmm. when I do concentrate on something, and I know this is going to lead into um, the article that you're going to talk about in a sec, I kind of want it to be kittens and rainbows, mm-hmm. and kind of just just quiet, soft edges and perhaps a slice of cake Mm -hmm. like that level of a book so it sort of fascinates me that we're going for these big almost scary unanswerable books but then I was thinking well maybe that's because we're living in scary unanswerable times and it's right like yeah like we just don't want to be alone in dealing with it uh I think that could definitely be a possibility um and I think it also depends on how you deal with stress yeah. So, like, last week, and I'll I'll tell y'all about this a little bit later as well. But um, I read Samantha Irby's new collection of essays called mm-hmm. "Wow, No Thank You" because it does deal with heavy stuff. But she is so funny. Oh my gosh, she is. It it is the kind of book that if you read it in public, which no one's gonna do for a while. I know that, but <laughs> like if what you're sitting, yeah, we don't do <laughs> right. it in public, <laughs> right? But if you're um if you're just, I mean, unless you're essential personnel, in which case, thank you very much for saving the world. Yeah, you love you. Um, anyway, it'll just make you like snort, laugh into the abyss of whatever you're experiencing at the time, and it mm. is just. A delight it truly is amazing um and that the one that i just finished is wow no thank you um which i think released this week so 
Go you get are it. Oh, <laughs> this reference. Right. It's right. Um, yeah. So I think, I mean, last week that was helpful for me is to like read something somewhat lighthearted or that at least yeah. um, approached really heavy topics in a lighthearted way. Like, let's make fun of the fact that uh, I can't really control my bowel movements. Like, mm-hmm. it would not mm-hmm. be funny, you know, in, in if it was happening to me, but the way she's telling the story, it is funny. Wow. If that and makes sense. Yeah. I think maybe you're right that you do just need that moment to kind of go, let's just laugh in this, right. in, in this situation. Right, because, I mean, that kind of thing in the moment is mortifying. And then, like, as soon as I mention it after the fact, it is funny, you know? Like, it, mm. it, it so uh, that was helpful for me. And then um, my typical way of dealing with anxiety of any kind is to go deeper into the crevasse of like, okay. I need to know everything yeah. so that I can avoid it. And um, if listeners, if y'all read our, my, the most recent newsletter that I wrote for the fright stuff, uh, all the books were about like contagion and quarantine <laughs> because that's what's on everybody's mind. And it sometimes helps to look at like fictional representations of that. Um, so uh, it sometimes helps now like you got to know yourself like what we talked yeah. about like like last week I was like I can't deal with any more doom I just nope it's not a good time for that for <laughs> just me no, I'm done it's over finish right and now I'm kind of easing back into it because that's my nature mm. <laughs> but you know know yourself know what you need um and I I one of the articles that I linked to uh in this past newsletter, but that we haven't had a chance to talk about on this show uh-huh. is uh, it's called, and it's from the New Yorker, but it's called what our contagion fables are really about. And it lists a lot of famous ones like Jack London's. I think it's, I can't remember the title of it, but it's the Scarlet Fever. I'll link to it in the show notes. So y'all know, sure. um, talk about mask of the red death. They talk about Mary Shelley's the last man. So, and uh, a lot of, um, plague literature. Um, and, uh, it's a very long article and pretty dense as is the case with the New Yorker and also fairly cynical, which is also the case with the New Yorker. (laughs) So I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to tell y'all, um, what I took away from it. So if you're like, I don't feel like going real into that this is the too long didn't read version go 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 (laughs) Um, for it i i picked up the thesis and a couple of examples so that way i you know i did your homework for you you're welcome (laughs) um i mean i know you read it louise i'm just talking about like colloquial you not you you (laughs) no 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 Um, (laughs) so basically the structures of the modern plague novel there's two of them it's either a story set within the walls of a quarantine which is what most of us are experiencing right now, I think. Um, or a story set among a ragged band of survivors, quote, within those two structures, though, the scope for the storytelling is vast. And so is the scope for moralism, historical argument, and philosophical reflection. And this is the part that I thought was the most important, which is also a quote from uh, the author Jill Lepore, I think is how you say your last name. Uh-huh. Um, Every plague novel is a parable. So uh, it's going into the other literary, like by default, plague novels are literary is what this is essentially saying. She never came out and said that, but that's what I took away from it. Um, And she also said that the final terror of every world ending plague is the loss of knowledge. 
So I don't know what we're really supposed to do with that. (laughs) (laughs) Just just deal with it in a calm and considered fashion. Um, Right. It was like, I don't know what it, I felt a lot of things about it, but it was hard for me to piece together the ultimate takeaway of that article. It's, it's a very dense piece. I think, um, for me, as much as I'm pro uh, a mention of Mary Shelley, because I think, wow, what, a, what an amazing figure, uh, Truly. for example. Um, yeah, I'm not, I think it was, it was almost just like, here are books, here is a metaphor, which is perfectly fine at some level, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure what I can do with it at the moment. And I think that's yeah. sort of what I'm <laughs> wanting, like yeah, doing just... articles. Well, yeah, because I was like, okay, so what? (laughs) (laughs) This was a great compilation of a whole bunch of plague stuff. Yeah. And what should I do with that? So I think... That is actually like one of the best tips I've ever been given for um, like writing or research or something. Is if someone can look at a paragraph you've done and go so what right what what is the difference what is what does it matter that i've read this like what difference would it make if this paragraph didn't exist Mm -hmm. if you can't distinguish a difference there then there's a problem that you need to be looking at and i think as much as i love the writing this piece and as much as i oh it's fantastic it's beautifully put together i kind of lacked the the um like everything's awful and it's a metaphor for something else equally awful and i'm like yes <laughs> i think that was the what we were supposed to take away from it and i just don't think that's super productive right now like yeah does that I mean think, to say like yeah. i think that that works for some people but not me i guess <laughs> but more mary shelley references everyone please oh, if always you could, yeah. yes for sure if you could send us those we'd be very happy and feature you highly <laughs> yes Forever. i agree um, i also okay one more thing about this article sure. that i took away because the author of this article quotes albert camus which mm. is the most bummer of dudes <laughs> he is just the most bummer that's his new um, description i'm sorry that's brilliant oh thank you <laughs> um well he she paraphrases him as saying the enemy we have is other humans and it's like okay literally yes we're supposed to stay away from each other physically Mm -hmm. but you can't have knowledge without other humans so like what is the deal then like what (laughs) is the and i really thought when she was talking about jack london because jack london is always like yeah i'm gonna I'm going to live this life. I'm going to yeah. smoke it to the filter. I really thought that it was going to come back around and be like, so you have to, when you're with your ragtag band of survivors, you got to stick together, which I also think is kind of what we're seeing now, at least in the art world. It's like, um, so while everyone who can do something is doing something, here's something beautiful we can share with each other for free. Yeah. Here's some exercise videos for free. And mm. when you're able to pay it forward, we just trust in humankind that we will. I saw something like that uh, the other day in, I think it was Naples in Italy, where they were, it was based on an old custom in the city, where they were dangling baskets of goods from their windows. And it said, look. How wonderful. 
gorgeous, right? If you and it was basically yeah. if you can contribute to these, please leave something in the basket. And if you need something, please take it away and help yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's just that looking forward and finding other people and finding those points of connection that even though we might not have them practically at the moment, they are still there and reaching for them is is no bad thing. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And just to kind of like balance out that doom and gloom of the article that I suggested, mm. I take full responsibility. I do. <laughs> um, I'm glad that you shared that. And then that made me think of, so my neighbor and best friend who I don't see right now, because, you know, we're not supposed to see anyone. Um, she's a, an intensive care nurse at Grady Hospital in Atlanta, which is where everyone goes during an emergency. So uh, she videoed the other day at shift change, all of the people uh, who live in the apartments came out on their balconies and applauded all of the workers oh, leaving. My I know. And it, it was such, it was just like, that's what we all are doing, but I'm glad that they could see it or hear yeah. it, you know? So, yeah, I know it almost made me cry because it gave me so I much know. hope. Gosh. Yeah. All right. Yeah. If, you are, yeah, if you're listening to this and you are a key worker and you are pulling us through and communities through this, then you have like all our respect. For the entire world. Oh my gosh. So much. Like you had it before, but now we're super like, thank you for saving our species again and again. <laughs> so, yeah. And if you, yes. you know, if there's anything that, uh, us regular people can do, definitely let us know. Cause you know, we're just sitting here contemplating yeah. our existence. So We'd love to be distracted like from kitten, that. <laughs> if you would like kitten and rainbow references, let us know and we can provide them. Yeah. So speaking of kitten and rainbow references, um, yeah, yeah. we're about to talk about our uh, next section of the episode. But before that, we need to hear about our sponsors who make this possible. Or yeah. a word from them. A word from our sponsors who make this possible. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. 
narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler. The Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Okay. So now, um, to introduce this next section, I would like to shout out one of our listeners anonymously, which is kind of defeating the purpose, but um, she wrote in and asked for our recommendations, and we really love when anyone writes in. Um, Yes. However, uh, yes, we really do love the feedback. Um, However, because we're not like a recommendations podcast, we had to kind of tell it slant. So like, give you what you want, but also tell it through another lens. So we wanted to talk about books that changed our lives, which is uh, to say, like, at some point while we were reading them, at least this was my uh, qualifier, Mm -hmm. it made me kind of sit back and rethink something. Yeah. Like, rethink something that I was doing on a regular basis or the way that I was living or the way that I thought about something regularly. And because we had so many... (laughs) recommendations. Um, We split this into two sections. So the first one is like, the first section, excuse me, is like books that we read or heard about during formative years. So like the, uh, during school, like grade school or university, or um, just at some point when it, it made an impression when we were I don't want to say young, but like impressionable. Yeah, that sort of period where you're being shown everything and taught everything. Um, Yeah, like when you're figuring out who you are. Yeah, so those definitive moments there. Uh, And this was really interesting to me when we chatted about it because I was thinking about the, as you might gather, I am from England, I am English. I don't know what is going to give it away to you right now, but (laughs) it might be a factor. and the curriculum for me, my generation in school, was a really difficult thing in that it was a very static, white, masculine environment. And that's all sort of very well and good at one level because you read certain books and you gain um, certain perspectives from them. But you gain a similarity, I think, right? Um, mm-hmm. You get this idea of literature being one thing and I remember that the only author uh, the only woman of colour that we studied was Alice Walker and the colour purple mm-hmm. and she blew my mind like mm-hmm. absolutely uh, it was not that she not just what she did but how she did it you know embracing like the epistol mm-hmm. embracing the epistolary form um the idea of womanism, the idea of women living complicated lives and living them wholeheartedly and, and bodily and um, emotionally. Mm-hmm. And finding that was like having a 
a light lit up in the darkness at some for sure that whole discovery of something other than the life that I was living mm-hmm. I uh I'm sorry that you didn't have a whole lot of diversity in your school but if you're gonna read one Alice Walker is a, is a good pick like oh, she's amazing she's um I didn't read the color purple until I was out of school but we had everyday use in seventh grade which I live in at the time in rural Georgia which I don't know what would give that away <laughs> to our <laughs> listeners <laughs> um but I remember reading everyday use which uh is it's a short story but in like seventh grade and uh it's the family's uh two sisters who want to use antique quilts in different ways so like one of them um uh, which a, a quilt is like a, a huge deal. It's it's so labor intensive, especially yeah. before machines. Um, and it's also uh, the equivalent of a useful scrapbook. So you have like different, like when you wear out a dress, you turn, you save it for scraps to put in your quilt and they have elaborate patterns and it's just a beautiful form of folk art. And uh, so one sister comes back from college um, and she uh, wants to take the quilt so she can display them. And the other sister who lives at home with her mom um, is, is, is promised the quilts so, because, so she can use them. And it's just like a, a really interesting way of appreciating history. Yeah, that um, sort of tangible heritage, right, that you can touch yeah. and feel. And that was one, actually, I didn't put it on the list originally, but that was one that really made me be like, well, you're going to use it up. Or, I don't, I mean, I don't know. Like, it kind of made me sit back and be like, I don't know which one is right. <laughs> so, um, I, I really like Alice Walker. And I didn't mean to cut you off. I just got really excited. And No, no, no. Alice Walker's a dream, isn't she? Like, what she mm-hmm. does and how she puts it together. And, like, I, it took a long time for me to realize that I was feminist, for example. Um, mm-hmm. But really, yeah. about womanism and this notion that your femininity is so innately linked to your culture and your experience it was like wow I I I love this yeah I love her um (laughs) pause to appreciate Alice Walker (laughs) (laughs) truly um it's also interesting to me that um I know I've mentioned Zora Neale Hurston on past episodes as well. Um, Alice Walker is is one of the uh, scholars and writers who kind of brought her back into yeah. the literary sphere from uh, somewhat obscurity. And uh, Toni Morrison, I, and I could be getting this wrong, but Toni Morrison kind of was in like arm in arm with Alice Walker. Mm-hmm. I believe in doing that as well, um, not as directly, but just kind of representing a similar minority. I think I love that, like the whole. Because again, this is something that really bothers me with the books that I read. There's a whole tendency to forget that literature existed past, like the last ten, fifteen years, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like that there were books before and writers before and authors before. And it's just that in some senses, we don't quite know how to remember them and to think about them and how to understand them. And so authors that bring other authors back into the picture and reclaim them and re uh, shout out about them, 
I think it's brilliant to do that, to have that collective practice of knowing who you are and where you come from as a writer. Mm-hmm. I think so too. And I, I actually, I know that like uh, in popular culture, we tend to forget the old stuff, yeah. but I was just, I had a diametrically opposed upbringing where it was like, um, if it's good, it'll still be around in 10 years. So yeah. you should just wait and read stuff that is already good, which I don't think that's super healthy either. Like you need a healthy, you need like a mix. <laughs> um, but uh, just to kind of bring us back to another uh, book uh-huh. that I would like to recommend um, by Toni Morrison, who we all know is the goat. She is fantastic. Um, I read Beloved, I think my senior year of high school and mm-hmm. I, I, it just, it taught me so much. Well, first of all, it's, I think probably my, my truest first love of the horror genre, because even though Toni Morrison is definitely a literary writer, um, that book is horror. It is like the first, the first line is talking about how a baby ghost is spiteful. And I just loved that unfurling for me of, uh, the, first-hand sort of, ex- I mean, it's fiction, of course, but a first-hand experience of making it to freedom as a slave, and then the fear of being brought back out of it. Yeah. Like, that was just so real for me, reading this book. And I, and, you know, we all abstractly, or maybe we don't all, but um, hopefully all of us um, abstractly know like that is one of the great human atrocities and abominations that has happened is yeah. slavery. Um, but that fear of like making it and then being like sucked back into it. And, and I don't want to spoil too much of this book in case y'all for some reason haven't read it yet, but um, just like what you would do to prevent someone you loved from having to experience that was just really like, uh, I, I, it it made history not make sense, but matter more yeah. to me personally, because it made sense logically, but not at, in an, on an emotional level for me until yeah. I read this book. And then, as um, one of the followers that I have on Twitter mentioned lately, um, Toni Morrison's novel Paradise is widely slept on and also amazing. <laughs> So I want to link to that one as well. We don't have to go into as much detail on that one because it wasn't like a formative experience for me, but I do remember reading it and being like, how did I not know about this one sooner? So, so yeah, I, I really love that one. Because there's moments of discovery, isn't there, where you're like, how has this been kept quiet? Yeah. I mean, I get that it was somewhat overshadowed, I think, by Beloved, because I'm pretty sure Paradise came out a few years afterward. But just, wow. Yeah. It's a mm. <laughs> moment of silence for this. Right. Respect. All right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So hopefully we're starting to give you a bit of an idea of how these books hit us um, emotionally. Not practically, because that would be awful and has like visions of throwing books at people. <laughs> Metaphorically. That's not what they're for. <laughs> yeah. Um. And the other one that I wanted to talk about, and I know this is super niche, and I'm going to sound really pretentious for a moment, so I do apologise. This is a literary fiction podcast. You do it. Yeah, we embrace this moment. We do. Um, we is, are elite. Uh, <laughs> at university, I discovered, I went to a really avant-garde university, which is kind of <clears> like, <throat> we don't want to write essays. We want to plot poems out of strands of grass. 
which cool. was the highlight of my life essentially and it taught me um a ton of things but it taught me how that I was getting really interested in books that do things differently that kind of mm-hmm. realize that they're books but sort of do something so innovative and so weird and different with the form and one of the literature schools that in, in, in this uh uni introduced me to was Ulipo which is a group of French writers who essentially got together in the 60s decided that literature is always a thing that's going to be written with constraints right um so why not mess about with the notion of constraint and use those as a creative force rather than like a reductive force oh so, cool yeah it's so oh i love what they do so much <clears throat> so they are ulipo and i'm just going to spell it out uh o-u-l-i-p-o and it stands for ouvroir de literature potentielle which is appalling uh, french i do apologize again <laughs> uh, very english french simply but it's for opening the potential of literature so a uh, bit of a niche reference but the famous most famous one from there again this just blows my mind on a practical level is a book called la disparation which is called a void in english and it's by a guy called george perret and Mm -hmm. it is um a murder yes i've heard of this see it's it's genius it's a mystery about the absence of a vowel the letter e and the entire book is written without that vowel so in this entire book there is no word that uses the letter e which yeah every time i sort of say it i think oh my god how did you do that without crying um (laughs) he wrote it originally in french and it is okay. really yeah, it's a really stylistic, brilliant, odd book. But the version that I read had been translated into English, and they kept the lipogram- uh, the the lipogrammatic uh, constraint of the absence of the letter e. Wow. So it's got no e in French. So you you think okay. that nothing is masculine, for example, la. You can't use la, which is a fairly key thing. Um, right. And in English, it's exactly the same. So there's no these, for example, or he or she. Uh, it's a stunning, stunning thing. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I can barely get my head around that kind of restraint. Yeah, One time in fourth grade, my teacher wanted us to be quiet. So she forbid us from using any words with the letter S. It was a genius wow. punishment, yeah. And this one kid would just keep talking, and then he would say cereal <laughs> whenever he <laughs> would get close to tripping up. That's that the closest genius, thing I, can... I think. <laughs> yeah, right. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so Ulipo, I think, was the first um, group of books that taught me that weird, innovative things were really interesting to me mm-hmm. um and that led me on to another book called the life and opinions of tristram shandy and that's from 1759 uh so it's a really modern recommendation for you <laughs> and it's by a guy called lawrence stern who was a religious he was a curate i think it is he was um, a member of the church essentially okay. and he decided to write kind of this strange autobiography of a fictional character and 
it is the most bawdy, rude, funny, silly, abstract, weird, brilliant book. For example, um, when a character dies, he just has a black page in the book to indicate mourning. Mm. So the whole text just disappears and there's just these big three, um, it's two black pages. So you turn over. Uh, he remembers, the character remembers him being, himself being born. He talks about the oh, most wow. beautiful person in the world uh, that you have to then draw into the book. Uh, it's so brilliantly odd that it kind of totally stretches and makes the book into something kind of magical and a bit mad and a bit strange and a bit dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that's so much fun. It is so much fun. I love that concept of uh, having the restraints and but using them. Yeah. And uh, one of the authors that I wanted to recommend does that somewhat, although less so in the book that I'm going to recommend, um, but somewhat, I guess, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, uh, Jonathan Saffron Four was yeah. one of my favorite um, authors when I was in college. Um, he has a bunch of cool stuff, but uh, the one that made the biggest impression on me was Everything is Illuminated. Yeah. Um, because uh, I studied nonfiction in college or in, in grad school. So uh, the fact that, I mean, this book is fiction. It's marketed as fiction. But he, um, the author, went to Ukraine to look up or to find out about his ancestors who had uh, died in and or, or not and, but, or survived uh, the, uh, the Holocaust. And um, he went and didn't really find anything that he wanted to talk about. So he made up a mythology, folktale, fairy tale about uh, his family and their origins. Um, And I just, I really loved first that, that, that he could do that, you know, like that, Yeah. that he was like, Oh, you've obliterated my family's history. There was nothing left for me to find. It's not fair that they don't have a story. I'm going to make one for them. Yeah, look at my power so, that I have during this time. Yeah, and I I loved that because um as happens when uh genocide is involved, you you are deprived of your family's history. And that's not really fair. Um or it's not fair at all, I should say. <laughs> um but I, I loved that book because no, I get uh, that. I get the style that. of it is is genius. It's like the translator from, uh, I think it's Ukrainian. It's not, or it's a dialect of Russian that I don't really understand. But um, it's written in such a way that you can hear the accent because it's so obvious that he is very smart but doesn't understand all of the idiom of English, which is, I mean, impossible anyway, like we've talked about before. Yeah. English is impossible to learn um, because it's like three languages wearing a trench coat masquerading as one. Um, but yeah, I, I loved that book because it, you can, it, it's, it's so cool this, that he can stay in that voice for so long and other works of his do that too. Uh, other works of Jonathan Saffron Fours, like um, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close and um, 
he he did a, a one with, with like concrete poetry as well that was very interesting. Um, he does a lot of playing with the language as well, which um, I really appreciate. But uh, more importantly, he tells a story that would have been lost otherwise. So yeah, um, or and, and it is an invention. Like he says, it is marketed as fiction. He's still the title character, but you know, he's like, it's not fair that. I don't like that all the records were destroyed so that I don't have anything to go on. Um, and another book that I loved and shaped my life because uh, of a similar um, sort of cultural pilgrimage theme or topic, I guess, um, is Roots by Alex Haley. Because um, the a similar thing, but to a, a, a greater magnitude, um, happened with African-American people where they, you know, have no family history because slavery. Yeah. Um, it, slavery is the cause for so many problems even now. Um, but they, uh, it's all oral history. So he traces his oral history first. And then it's just, if you haven't read Roots, it it is a big book, but we're all sequestered. So you have plenty of time to read it. <laughs> and it's also... It, it's long, but it it goes fast. So it's yeah. like it's very accessible. There's no like stopping every five pager, pages or every five words, I should say, to look up a word. Mm. You don't have to like make a character index like you do with the Russian novels, where you have to like try to remember everyone, even though they never come back into the story. Which I don't know why <laughs> you would do that to your readers. Why do you? Why are you mad at me? Breathe, breathe. It's fine. It's fine. We'll get through this. <laughs> <Right>. It's fine. <laughs> Right. So, um, but Roots doesn't do that. It's, it's made to be very accessible uh, or written to be very accessible. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, and it's just such an important book that, uh, uh if you haven't read it, you got to, like, yeah. it's a staple. Let um, us know as well. And it's interesting too, because, uh, it does a similar thing as, uh, everything is illuminated. Um, but I think on a more wide, wide scale, and it is nonfiction. Um, so, but, but of course, like it's heavily researched, like documented and everything. Yeah. Um, and also Alex Haley is like, where, I, I mean, he's amazing. He, he did the, he co-wrote the autobiography of Malcolm X. Like he's done so much good stuff that I don't know. I just, I can't oversell it, I guess is what I was trying to say. <laughs> to um, some, but, read. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that some of those, uh, or those two books particularly, like, were important to me during formative years because, I, I, mean, I know y'all can't see me, but um, growing up ethnically ambiguous in the American South, I got asked on a regular basis, where are you from? And I would be like, oh, I'm from here. And they would be like, no, before that. And so it was nice to have, like, those family histories yeah. for me so that I could be like, oh, I'm not the only person who gets asked this. And doesn't really have an answer. Um, I'm Lebanese, by the way, but like it's several generations back, and a lost a lot of it is lost to mm. history. But I just, for me, it was important because uh, it kind of gave me that culture. Like my family didn't get asked that because everybody knew them. It was a really small town when they were growing up. Yeah. So it was just like a, a community kind of for me that I really appreciated. And yeah, and even if you haven't experienced that firsthand, you might want to read it so that. Uh, you know how it is, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Okay. So Louise, do you want to start us off with more recent life-changing recommendations? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I do. Um, Yay. <laughs> it's handy, isn't it? If I just said no, we could just stop. Um, but no, I'm here for oh, the books. Sorry, here. <laughs> I'm um, just kidding. I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the more recent life changes, because we're thinking like education is that really big moment of where you right. were kind of given a lot of things to read. But then equally, there's the moments where you go out and you start to find the world for yourself, the literature world for uh, the literary world for yourself, the idea of other books existing, like the shift from um, reading what you're told to read to reading what you want to read is quite a marked thing yes it is so it's difficult. Awesome. <laughs> it is it's great but I remember like I used to work in um a university and the shift in that first year is a lot for people to handle where they have to go from lead learning to self-led and it's a massive massive thing That's so true. for me uh it was kind of just slowly tracing the paths of other women writers and these communities of thinkers and communities of um, ideas. So one of the big discoveries for me was the publishing house Virago, which is a feminist London publishing house. Uh, It's so great. I recommend (laughs) them entirely to you in so many ways. But one of the ones that I really enjoyed was recently and was quite um, like it was so uh, landmark for me that I even started writing down on the pages. And I thought, gosh, I don't do that normally. Um, I know you don't. I know. I was like quietly hyperventilating to myself going, what are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I know. (laughs) Talking myself away from the pen and page. I was like, but you have to. This is so beautiful. Um, Was a book called She Came to Stay by Simone de Beauvoir, who I have mentioned before. Mm. Uh, Mm. But in its uh, original title, it was known as Long Vitae. And it's a novel about a woman who becomes involved in a uh, relationship so there is basically three people um in this relationship together and things get very complicated very quickly and oh yeah i cannot imagine yeah it's i really cannot so around it messy and yet so (laughs) honest and so raw and so beautiful and so terrifying in a way because Simone de Beauvoir really has this great gift of going straight to the emotional heart of something even if it's not necessarily a pretty place to be mm-hmm. so yeah Long Vitae blew my mind quite substantially and you should be able to get it secondhand fairly cheap uh do if you can and give yourself time to read it because it's very dense again and there's so much going on uh but it's really worth the effort So. Virago was a massive one for me, but then more recently, the two big books that have blown my mind were Duke's Newburyport by Lucy Ellman, which is by, um, it is a small British press called Galley Press, and it's an immense book. It's like five times the size of everything else on the shelf, because um, if you haven't heard of it, it is written primarily in uh, unbroken sentences so it just goes through and through and through and the refrain that repeats is the fact that so she it's it's like um, a narrative of her inner thoughts and her soliloquy of life so she the the narrator just goes oh the fact that so and so hasn't done his washing 
the fact that um, I need to make this pie, the fact that blah, 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 and it goes mm. on. And the rhythms of this story and her life are blindingly good. And it's so it ties again with the other stories that I've mentioned in that it takes the book and it makes it something brand new. Mm-hmm. So um, when you're talking about like the, the sentence structure, uh-huh. it reminded me of, and this could be wrong, but um, one of the feminist texts that I learned that does that similarly, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, please do, um, is Girl by Jamaica Kincaid. I do not know that one, no. It's it's a short, I guess you'd call it a prose poem. I studied it as poetry, but um, it's essentially like a series of warnings spoken to a young girl. But uh, it's like tasks and also like the, what is it? It's a phrase that gets repeated like as a refrain where it's like, yeah. uh, it's the something you are so bent on becoming, which is like a bad thing. It's not. I don't, I think it's a, like a curse word, so I can't say it here. Okay. Um, but it's, um, it's very good. It's just like, it's a very short piece. And I remember uh, what you were saying, like it, I read it and I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is so important. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the fact that they sustained it for a full or that she, she sustained it for a full book length work is it's remarkable like the effort that this book must have been i think it took something like seven or eight years to write in that it was so intense and yet each um page is almost poetic in scale she finds these rhythms and these beats and it does i think you're right in mentioning the jamaica kincaid thing um it reaches very much back to these texts of womanhood identity speaking these oral stories of like figuring out how it is to be who you are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like those types of texts that kind of make you con- like, if not change, at least assess why you are the way that you choose to be. Yeah. That like, give you that mirror that choice. Yeah. Yeah. And it can, I mean, I think that's what we're saying here is like, if it doesn't make you change, it at least makes you double down on what you've been doing. Yeah, for sure. It gives like you that more, moment of understanding. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think I'll go into, wait, did you hit all three of yours? Uh, yeah, the, of yours? The, the other one that I wanted to mention was Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. Yes, I remember you mentioning this. Oh, that you my were days. Yeah, I will mention it at every opportunity that I can. Okay. I'm really sorry. I'm like that with Beloved. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not sorry. It's like, if, if you gather anything else from these podcasts, read Beloved and read Girl, Woman, Other. Because it's just, it's brilliant. It's such a confident, brilliant, kind, sympathetic, odd, brilliant, fun fabulously written book and again it's all these stories about identity and who you are and as you say offering you the opportunity to reflect on your choices and your decisions and I we don't sort of often mention this or we haven't really yet but it is beautifully produced like the jacket and the design of it it is a really it's a really good looking book 
and it's that's just, always a bonus yeah i think sometimes it gets forgotten sometimes that you know we can go for like the literary fiction cliche of some meaningful squiggle and maybe an, a fancy font and leave it at that <laughs> but uh yeah girl woman other is just a treat from like start to finish and uh bernardine everisto is an author that you should be heading towards with all your might if you can because she's just a gift she's so incredibly talented subtext add to cart <laughs> Tick. <laughs> yeah so um i'm trying to figure out where to start here i guess i'll start yeah. where i've already been um about samantha irby it is a little mm-hmm. less overtly literary than i think most of our recommendations have been and most of our texts that we talk about on this podcast are yeah but and she says like she's just making jokes but of course you're gonna say that right like so um i mentioned uh, when we started the wow no thank you her newest collection of essays that just got released but i've also taught my english 1101 composition class about a selection from her previous essay collection called we are never meeting in real life um and it opens with a story called my bachelorette application where she just eviscerates the pop culture of reality television and it is the funniest and most apt hilarious it's just it's everything and my students all were like she's so nasty and it's amazing because this is exactly what you think while you're watching it. So it's, I definitely recommend that book of hers as well. Um, And, and the ones that the books that changed my life, quote quote unquote, changed my life um, Mm -hmm. later are usually, they have something to do with form or perspective. So I'm, I'm reading them more as a writer if that makes sense. Like, yeah. oh, this is something I've never seen before, like on the page. Kind of like what you're saying about the uh, refrain and the long sentences or um, not including the letter E. Yeah, gosh. Which is, I, it's still unfathomable to me. Like, I don't. Anyway, I'm distracting myself. So, one that I read for fun, right? When I was self learning um is by timothy schaefer which i think is how you say his last name as i just said it aloud realized i have never heard it aloud before it could be some it could be french or sounding i don't know um but it's called the mermaid in the tree it's a retelling of a of the little mermaid fairy tale from the perspective of uh the woman that the prince does marry so she hates the mermaid Mm. um and it's which is, I love a fairy tale retold from the perspective of a villain, pretty much always. Uh, but particularly if they're feminist and the more magical slash gritty the telling is, the yeah. more I enjoy it. And I don't know how he does it. I really, it is, it's just so wonderful to me. It's like if the Coen brothers and, um, What's the guy who did the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus got together and wrote a book? (laughs) It's like both noir and 
fantasy somehow. I don't, it's just fantastic. And it's a short story. It's included in the anthology, My Mother, She Killed Me, My Father, He Ate Me, which is fairy tale retellings. Yeah. Um, but if you're like, I don't, I'm not really into short stories or anthologies, his book, The Swan Gondola, has a very similar um, tone and setting and characterization, including like mute ventriloquists and crash landed hot air balloons and vaudeville performances and poison and ghosts and it's just oh my gosh it was so hard for me but i just idolized him so much that i asked him to write a blurb for my book that's coming out next month or next month when you're listening to this and he was like sure and i (laughs) my spirit left my body did a victory lap around my apartment complex when it was safe to go outside and then came back into me. And I was like, this is, <laughs> I can't believe that. First of all, you even read it, that you responded and that you said, yeah, it was just amazing. Anyway. Did you do one of those traditional sort of calm emails at the end of going, oh, that's really great. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm so glad you agreed <laughs> to, thanks, man. So happy for this car. cool. Uh, don't, I'm fine. Press send, I'm totally start streaming. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not crying. <laughs> You're crying, probably. Um, yeah, so I really love his writing. Um, and then I think I've mentioned this collection of short stories before, um, Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado. Um, she's also the creepiest. I want to be her friend so bad. Like She's huh? just the coolest. Um, and her story, Inventory, Um, which is about a similar plague-related apocalyptic scenario is amazing. And I don't, I don't want to give away too much of it because the, the, the form of it is kind of the joke that you realize at the end. Um, and it's also the title. So like, you should know it from the beginning, but you don't, um, it's just amazing. Uh, it's uh, in a, a list of sexual experiences, but it's so much more than that. And this is what I told my English composition 1102 students. Like, if you think it's just pornography, I'll know you didn't finish reading because it's not. <laughs> um, it's so good. And uh, she also retold the story of the girl with the green ribbon at the beginning of the book. So it's like several. Uh, it's a collection, like I think I said. Um, but that was one of my favorite urban legends when I was a kid. Um, you know this story, Louise? I do not. I was going to I was going to say is this what is this? Is it something So can- it's a it's um I can tell it to you real quick. Okay. It's an urban legend slash folktale about uh a girl who wears a green ribbon around her neck. Um and her she gets she falls in love and gets married and then when she gets really sick and she's about to die, her husband asked her asks her um I've always wondered why you wore a green ribbon around your neck. And then she pulls the ribbon off and her head falls off. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's, um, it's one of my favorites and I didn't spoil it for you. Uh, the spoil, um, I mean, I told you the whole narrative, but her story has so much more going on in it, in her body and other parties. Uh, so yeah, so those are my more recent life changes. And I'm sure as soon as we sign off, um, I'll think of a thousand more. 
Yeah, that's uh, the way because it's that is go. the nature of the of my mind. <laughs> but yeah, and I'm so glad to our listener who wrote in and asked us to do this because this was yeah, a really so fun much. and I think longish episode <laughs> for us. But yeah. yeah, um, yeah, I think it's fun. Like, I, I it's think super it's... fun to talk about what you love. <laughs> yeah, reflecting on those moments and you think, wow, they are like the pivot points in my in my literary life and seeing where where they took you and what that was. So yeah, thank you so much for that idea. Yeah, it was a great idea. If y'all have other ideas, listeners, we want to hear them. Yeah, let us know for sure. All right, so uh, to wind up this uh, episode today, we will let you know about our current read. So Mary Kay, what are you reading at the moment? So I just started reading The Brief History of the Dead by Kevin Brockmeyer. It is also a plague apocalypse i'm going just i'm just running on a thing into it at this point right um yeah uh but it's very interesting because and i'm again not spoiling anything because it says it in the epigraph um it's a uh, have you seen the movie coco the animated movie? no okay well just kind of to give the backstory right but I, know, I know of it um, yeah okay uh so when someone dies you go to like a a next life and you're kept sort of alive living dead is what they call it in the book mm-hmm. um w- that you're kept alive by the memories of people who remember you and then it gets weird because the city starts emptying out so the spirits who are kept yeah. alive starts just like there's no one there oh okay that's as far as i've gotten <laughs> i just started <laughs> it but i heard it was really good so so yeah and i'm is it liking it a lot so far I think so, so far, yeah. What are you reading? Uh, Well, all right. So I was um, tucking into a book called Unflattening by Nick Susanis. Uh, And it's a really interesting book. He wrote a comic for his PhD thesis, essentially. Yeah, I know. So rather than submitting like several hundred pages of text, he submitted a uh, comic. And it's all about visual theory. Uh, how images work, philosophy, and everything in between. Um, and this is the collected published edition of it. So I've not been nice. able to look at the thesis itself and see, you know, like what the specific differences are. Mm-hmm. But the published collected version is so interesting. It's really a literary non-fiction book. And this isn't something we've touched on so far. And we will do probably in a further episode, I imagine. Oh, yeah, talk, that'd be fun. Yeah, talk more about like literary non-fiction and how that works some picks for that but Ooh, this yeah. is so interesting because it's all about uh images and counterpoint and how visual literacy works and where to go with that and how to um fold narrative and play around with it and see what comes out at the end so Ooh. yeah it's it's so interesting I don't think it's one to read all at once, like read a chapter mm. in fair isolation, um, mm. which ironically we all are in now. <laughs> right. um, yeah, I know. It's perfect read for now. Um, I love that title too. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, if you like things like, you know, Scott McCloud and his comic book theory work, if you enjoy uh, big graphic novels that ask complicated big questions, I think this is going to be one of you for sure. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that wraps up everything that I wanted to say. 
Me too, yeah. Are you good too? Okay. Then in that case, we're going to sign off. A uh, big thank you to our sponsors. Thank y'all for listening. Thank you. Um, don't forget to subscribe through however you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends and maybe your mom about us over the uh-huh. phone safely. Mm-hmm. We are pro-moms. Yeah. Where can they find you online? You can find me at my website, which is didyouoverstoptothink.com. And I am on Twitter at chaletfam. Wonderful. And this is Mary Kay McBrayer. My website is MaryKayMcBrayer.com, but you can also follow me on Twitter at MKMcBrayer and Instagram at Mary Kay McBrayer. That's just a whole bunch of my own name dropping. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. All right. Thank you very much. Yes. Thanks so much, y'all. Talk Cheers, to you soon. Bye. Bye.